It's great to have you here. To the uh, number of visitors here we have this morning, a welcome to you. In case you don't know who I am, my name is Paul and I'm one of the, the pastors here together with uh, Simon and the team. And it's wonderful to, to have you here from wherever you've come. If you've got your Bible, open up to that reading. Well done, Judy, for getting through all those names. And uh, you'll be happy to know that the test at the end of the sermon is for you to recite and um, tell me who they, who they are at the door when you, when you say hello to me going out. All right, uh, open up to Matthew chapter 1. And I've got a heading there for you, the Genesis of Jesus. And I'm just going to... Um, I'm going to pray. Father, as we come to the old, old story, as we come to the familiar Christmas narrative, I pray that you'd open up our eyes, open up the eyes of our hearts, to see Jesus, to see something of his glory, to glimpse something of his beauty, to be captivated because therein lies our joy and our strength and our peace and our hope in the hurly-burly messiness of this world. And we ask it in his name and for your glory. Amen. All right, the genesis of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1. Well, a very important word today, a word that you hear a lot of is the word narrative. Narrative. A narrative is a spoken or a written account of connected events. It's, it's a story. And Christmas is a narrative. It's a series of connected events over thousands of years that even reaches back to when the world first began. But I think one of the great challenges with the Christmas narrative is not letting it become boring and stale. Christmas narratives can sometimes seem like same old, same old. Three wise men, baby, carols, manger, cattle lowing in a barn, star, blah, blah, blah. Now, just to tweak your interest, here are five misconceptions about the Christmas narrative. Maybe you know these, maybe you don't, but they certainly were not just three wise men. I hope you know that it's highly unlikely that Jesus was born in a stable. Highly unlikely that Joseph sought accommodation in an inn or a first century motel. Jesus was not born on the 25th of December, and this one may shock you, there was no star on the night that Jesus was born. The star came later. The Magi came to see Jesus after he was born, if we read the narrative right. But as I take you through Matthew 1 this morning, as I take you through Matthew 2 next Sunday, let's you and I not get distracted with the muddled misconceptions. But I want to hopefully fix your eyes on the grand redemptive narrative of what Christmas is all about. And it's summed up in these words in Matthew 1, 22, 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'm going to set your eyes on Jesus. So let me start with a quote from the great Puritan Ambrose. And here's what he said. He said, we preach nothing else but Christ as the object of our faith. Only Christ is the whole of man's happiness. The sun to enlighten him, the physician to heal him, the wall of fire to defend him, the friend to confront him, the pearl to enrich him, the ark to support him, the rock to sustain him under the heaviest pressure. As Christ is more excellent than all the world, so this sight transcends all sights, looking unto Jesus. Oh, that we might look again this morning unto Jesus, the Son, the Physician, the Wall of Fire, the Ark, the Rock, the Pearl, and be captivated by Him again this Christmas because the world is captivated by a very different narrative. Matthew 1, we're going to take the whole thing in one go, but only three points. Here's the first one. Our God works on a grand scale. Our God works on a grand scale. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, if you've got the script in front of you, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Literally from the Greek, this is the, this is the genesis of Jesus Christ. This is the new work of recreation that God is doing through the origins of Jesus Christ. And if you and I this morning can just stop and ponder for a moment and, and look at what seems to be some sort of mundane, trivial, ancestral tree, we can again be captivated by the work of God who is sweeping through the generations of history. This is the genesis of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so the arc of history is reaching back over a thousand years to David, reaching back over 2,000 years to Abraham. And if you and I were to add the little genealogy from Luke, in Luke chapter 3, we'd read this. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. In other words, the grand scope of God's work in Jesus Christ is reaching back over 6,000 years to the very beginning, to the genesis of creation, to Adam, the first man, the very first son of God. In Jesus, who is the son of David, son of Abraham, son of Adam, Matthew is telling us that the coming of Jesus is the answer to the fracture of evil committed by the first son of God, Adam. Matthew is telling us that in the garden, Jesus is the promised seed to Eve after our first parents gave birth to sin. Matthew is telling us that the coming of Jesus is the fruition of every single promise made to Abraham to redeem the nations from the fall. That the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that we looked at last week. That a king would come and he would sit on the throne of heaven. What Matthew is doing is telling us that in the coming of Jesus, 
It's been thousands of years in the making. The result of God's meticulous, painstaking, sovereign work carried out on an epic grand scale. And as you look at the family tree, as you look at verses 2 to 17 as a whole, we see God at work. We see him carefully teasing out his plans in the final culmination of David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a look at verse 17, for example. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, literally, there were more than 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. But Matthew has carefully selected who are on the branches of the Yeshua tree. But his point is this. At just the right time, at the culmination of the ages, Christ came. God has been at work generation after generation, name after name, to ensure that just at the right moment, Jesus Christ put his foot onto this planet. And when was the right time? When was it the right time? Matthew Henry, in his commentary, puts it like this. He says, when the seed of Abraham was a despised people, recently become a tributary to the Roman yoke, when the hope of David was buried in Roman political obscurity, Christ came as a root out of dry ground. Matthew is telling us that everything that has gone before, from Adam through Abraham through David to Jesus, was part of God's patient build-up to this moment when God would become one of us. The coming of Jesus, therefore, should really leave us with a healthy sense of our smallness. It should implant in us a refreshingly humbling effect, giving us a healthy recalibration that you and I are not the center of the universe. The Yeshua tree is the patience of God, the timing of God, the planning of God, the sovereign control of God woven into the sap of historical branches. This is our God working on an epic grand scale, but also working in the minutiae of human lineage to bring his glory into this world that we might be captivated by him and fall in love with him. Our God works on an epic grand scale. But number two, our God works in the mess. I wonder if perhaps this morning you've ever been ashamed of who you are. I wonder if you've ever been embarrassed about your family history. Maybe the moment that you realize in your family tree there were killers in there. Or there were some rebels whose names you might be too embarrassed to mention. Maybe the moment you understood you were born out of, out of wedlock and in days gone by you would have been called an illegitimate. I wonder if you've got some skeletons in your family tree. 
You look at this tree in Matthew chapter 1, and what you see are skeletons and scandals galore. If there was one thing that Jews cared about, it was racial purity. You remember how the religious leaders always were pontifying before Jesus, how they were sons of Abraham. It turns out the greatest Jew ever to be born had a history whose earthly heritage was a little less holy than anyone cared to believe. Got the text in front of you, but take a look. In verse 3, we've got Tamar, who was a Canaanite, and she was the mother of Perez. Verse 5, Rahab was the mother of the great Boaz, was a Canaanite from Jericho. Verse 5, Ruth, the mother of Obed, was a Moabite. Verse 6, Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, mother of Solomon, was a Hittite. And let me just add one more to the list. It's not obvious in the text, but any Jew with a nose of history would understand it and pick it up. Have a look at verse 7. Solomon, the father of of Rehoboam. In 1 Kings 14, 31, we read this, and Rehoboam rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David. His mother's name was Namor. She was a, what? Ammonite. Jesus racially was a mixed breed of Jewish Ammonite, Canaanite, Hittite, Moabite blood. And that was just the tip of the scandalous iceberg. Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute to sleep with Judah that produced Perez. Rahab was a prostitute. King David, verse 6, committed adultery. That produced Solomon. Solomon, verse 7, ended up as some sort of idolatrous, synchristic God worshiper. And in 1 Kings chapter uh, 2 Kings chapter 21, we'll come to in a moment, Rehoboam, whose mother was an Ammonite, he lost the 10 tribes of Israel. And then we've got this. With Manasseh, verse 10, one of the kings, it says this of Manasseh. Manasseh, king of Judah, committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. You see it? The genesis of Jesus ain't pretty. It's racially impure. The line is punctuated with people who are idolatrous, greedy, murderous, sexually impure, liars, and cheats. Does that remind you of anybody you know? The tree is punctuated with brokenness, shocking sin, and dysfunction. This is the family line that Jesus stepped into, came out of. And if this tree could talk, it would shout something like this. Jesus stepped out of glory into the inglorious mess for us and with us. But did we expect a king that would have better credentials? Did we expect a king that would have a better bloodline? Did we expect a king that would have less skeletons and scandals in his closet? The sinless son from a sinful family line stepping into a world steeped in scandals. And that's the very clue to understanding why he came. The pure for the impure. The perfect for the imperfect. The sinless for the sinful. The light for the darkness. The glorious for the inglorious the life for death. What's the uh, 
What's the world like that you stepped into when you were born? When you look back over your family tree, when you look over your shoulder back into your history, I suggest what you will see, you'll see what I see in my line. Full of tiredness, weakness, wounds, sin, debilitating bad habits, betrayals, suicide, brokenness, shattered dreams, unfulfilled expectations, foolishness, anxieties. Jesus stepped into a world of mess with us and for us. You see, the tree of life in Matthew 1 says, our God works on an epic grand scale, but he works in and through the intricate messiness of life. Oh, and by the way, did you see that Matthew makes it quite clear that she conceived Jesus before she was married to Joseph? Did you pick up the scandal? This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Matthew is not quite silent about the scandal, is he? Jesus grew up as an illegitimate. Communities have long memories, and the community of Jews would never forget the illegitimacy of Jesus Christ and his human birth. Jesus Christ was born into the embarrassment and shame and mess for us, with us. She'll give birth to a son. And you ought to give him the name Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. But maybe we can read it like this. If we're really going to feel something of its power and effect. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their scandals, from their shame, from their embarrassing past, from their family's sin, from their brokenness and their mess. Our God works in an epic grand scale. I guess we could say our God works in the epic mess. And number three, our God works by his powerful spirit. If you've got your text open in front of you, you've got an NIV. At the end of verse 17, it says that Joseph accepts Jesus as his son, but that is, that's not quite the emphasis of the section. Matthew does not want us to focus on Mary. He doesn't want us to focus on Joseph. Rather, he wants us to focus on something that is mentioned twice in the passage. And you'll pick it up. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew wants us to know that the bringing of Jesus Christ into the world is the recreating work of the Holy Spirit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Matthew wants us to see the incredible creative work of the Holy Spirit in bringing the Savior of the world into the world. And if you're an attentive reader, you will suddenly pick up a link between the genesis of Christ and the genesis of creation. Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, ready in anticipation of the, of the creative genius of God in creation. Back in Matthew 1, it's the Spirit of God hovering over the womb of Mary in anticipation of the greatest creative act to bring the eternal Son of God into the womb of Mary. It's staggering. In the deep recesses of the waters of Mary's womb, the, the Spirit is like a ticking creative time bomb. It's about to plant the holy seed of God where the embryo of God would take on human flesh. Staggering. You see, minds that are blind, minds that are so scientifically rational, they get so befuddled by a virgin birth. How can a virgin conceive? causing them to deny the, Christ the Christmas narrative as something of being unreasonable and the product of ancient Jewish myth. But in Matthew 1, and 23, we are told that the virgin birth was the fulfillment of the promises of God made to Ahaz way back 850 years prior in the book of Isaiah. And here in grand scale, the Spirit works in the minutia of a human womb to bring the glory of God into this world. We are therefore to glorify the work of the Spirit in the birth of Christ. Because again, she will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. What's the Spirit doing? The Spirit's bringing a new Moses who will lead a new liberation out of the bondage of slavery and sin. What's the Spirit doing? He's bringing a new Joshua who will lead God's people not into an earthly not into an earthly land, but into a new heavens and a new earth. A time when sin, scandal, shame, and suffering will be no more. Perhaps we can start to see this morning
that the narrative of Christmas is just a little bit bigger than God merely working through ordinary people, which of course he does. The Christmas narrative is about what the Spirit has done through a sin-stained humanity to bring the eternal Son of God, Son of David, Son of Abraham, Son of Adam into this world. And here's the thing. The work of the Spirit of bringing Christ into this world is so that we can start to look away from ourselves unto Jesus. The Spirit doesn't bring Christ into the world so we can start looking at ourselves, so that we can start focusing on the, on the, on the trinkets of the holiday season and the traditional myths of Christmas. Remember these words of Jesus to Nicodemus? John 3. Very truly I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water in the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is to open up your eyes to see the wondrous Captivating beauty of Emmanuel, God with us. And to do a work of recreation. To do a work of new creation in you by shining the new light of creation into the darkness of your heart by faith in Jesus. Jesus again in John 16. But very truly I tell you it is for your Good that I'm going away, because unless I go away, the Advocate, the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong, in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin, because people do not believe in me. The Spirit brings Christ into the world for people to believe in Him because people live in darkness and they love the darkness rather than the light. And if we could take it just one incredible step further. In Romans 8, Paul says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. When the Spirit gives you a new birth to see Jesus, the Spirit lives in you, unites you to Christ, and is the Spirit who will one day raise your mortal body from the dead. Just as He raised Jesus from the dead. Praise the Father. Chapter 1, verse 20, who appeared to Joseph. Praise the Son of David who will save his people from their sins. Praise the Spirit who conceived the Savior of the world in the womb of Mary. The Spirit who brought Jesus into the world is the same Spirit who did the miracles through the life of Jesus. 
It's the same spirit who took Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. It's the same spirit who led Jesus to the cross. It's the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. It's the same spirit who will bring back Christ in cosmic kind of glory. The same spirit who lives in us. It's the same spirit who groans and intercedes for us before the throne room of God. And it's the same spirit that will present us to the Father in glory one day when Christ returns. That's the work of the Spirit. To show us Emmanuel, God with us, that we may be captivated by His glory. The work of the Spirit is so that we may gaze on Christ in all His, in all his beauty, in all His transcendence, and, and, and together with, with creation and all the angels sing His praise. The work of the Spirit is to magnify the person and work of Jesus, whom He birthed through Mary, so that we may be transfixed and transformed by looking at His face. The work of the Spirit is seen, felt, known when we look unto Jesus, when Christ is the center of Christmas. It's God who works in people by the Spirit to treasure Jesus. It's God who works in people by the Spirit to treasure Jesus. Let me close with that quote again. And then ask you a question. Here's that quote again by Ambrose. We preach nothing else but Christ as the object of our faith. Only Christ is the whole of man's happiness. The sun to enlighten him. The physician to heal him. The wall of fire to defend him. The friend to confront him to comfort him, the pearl to enrich him, the ark to support him, the rock to sustain him under the heaviest pressure. As Christ is more excellent than all the world, so the sight transcends all sights, looking unto Jesus. Here's my question. Where are you looking this Christmas? What are you looking at? What are you focused on? Where's your gaze? Would you again look unto Jesus? The sun, the physician, the wall of fire, the ark, the rock, the pearl. And be captivated by him again. Because the world is captivated by a very different Christmas narrative. I'm going to have the music team or the gathering team up. So it's my prayer for myself and just, the just up there for that. <laughs>
if you could ask if you could ask God for one thing this Christmas just one thing what would you ask for I wonder what would you really want under the tree I hope